2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 to 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. As the grass withers and the flowers fade, God's word, inerrant and inspired by him, endures forever. May he bless it. You know, uh, Paul has a style of writing that when you read each one of his letters, you can see that style always coming out and meeting us. A style where he first lays out theology and truth that we are to know, and then application. How that truth is to set in our lives and then express itself in the way that we live. That pattern of instruction in truth and then direction for godly living and kingdom service. And and this letter is no exception, however small it is. The same with the first Thessalonians. These are amongst his first letters that he wrote, uh, Galatians being the first And we see that pattern just meeting us again as chapter 3 unfolds. Here comes the godly application to our lives. And one of the first things is Paul has spent a bit of time dealing with eschatology, the doctrine and understanding of the end times, God's final judgment and the coming glory of Jesus Christ and the uh, events that will precede that, and they will be short events, the great apostasy and the revelation of that man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. I I think some people in in the church picture that this is a long, drawn-out affair when that happens. It isn't. It's going to be short. Because then the glory of Christ and the power of our God will be revealed as the end of days comes. So how are we to live (laughs) while we wait for that? And and this is where chapter 3 comes in. It's not as as explosive in in detail as 1 Thessalonians 5 was, but it is nonetheless telling us now with that knowledge and understanding of the end of days, How do you live? And the first thing that he urges us to is to live a life as believers confident in the Lord. He expresses it more as an indicative. We have confidence in the Lord, verse 4, concerning you. We have confidence in you. And, And as you apply that, it's, it's in respect of what he is saying before and after. 
How do you have confidence in someone? Have you ever told someone in, in some earthly aspect, I've got confidence in you. Maybe it's your child when they say, I want to do this. And you encourage them along and you say to them, I know you can do it. Go ahead and do it. Or a friend or your spouse when they want to take up a, a new project or a new job or some new endeavor in their life and you want to support them. And we use that phrase often. I've got confidence. I know you. You can do it. And we urge them on in that way. I want to say it's not wrong to encourage people to do their best. It's not wrong to support people in their endeavors. But I have seen that phrase used in a very um, foolish way, I think is an appropriate uh, phrase for it. In that, in that kind of piety that exists with the what I call the modern idol of individualism. You see it on social media all the time now, where people are saying, I have come to only surround myself with people who will affirm me in what I want to do and what I believe. I don't want that negativity or people telling me what they think is true concerning my idea of it. And so that I'm ridding myself of all of that. And then you see all the little encouragements. You go. You can do it. We'll support you in this. And there's a, a bit of a false piety with that kind of attitude. You have the good and the bad when it comes to saying, I've got confidence in you. And you want to encourage people along. But you know, that confidence is false and meaningless if it isn't in what is true and right. And that's where we have to be guarded. Think about it. Where do you place your confidence? I was thinking on this and thinking on a show that I used to watch uh, a while ago and stopped watching it because... I could, could tell the direction in which many of the episodes were going. How many of you have ever watched Dragon's Den? And, and you've got these young or these new entrepreneurs who are coming forth with their product and wanting the uh, people uh, on, on, the, on the stage to invest their monies into their project. And they come with a whole lot of vigor to sell what they're, what they're offering. And in many cases, you can almost tell by how the product is being presented or by the person who is presenting it, whether or not uh, those dragons are going to have any confidence in them. And, and it usually comes down to understanding how well someone knows the climate, knows the people that they're trying to offer their product to, and knows what is needed. And those dragons seem to have a whole lot of sense in it. And there's times in which they would tell this person 
that their product is not worth it. And, and it always sounds mean. It always sounds like we're dashing the hopes of that individual. But there's an honesty that comes and meets them, which they probably weren't looking for. In times, we need that. But we're not always willing to express it because we think it's negativity, that it, it's not going to help build them up. It's going to bring them down. Do you know, Jesus made a statement that I think applies preeminently to God's word, preeminently to the gospel, but it applies when it comes to the issue of truth. You remember that statement from John chapter 8? What is it about truth? It will set you free. Sometimes the truth has to be spoken. And Paul has written elsewhere about the issue of confidence and the warning of having false confidence. And and that is something that Christians have to be guarded preeminently against is a false confidence. You go to Philippians chapter 3 and Paul there talks about having no confidence in the flesh. What he means by that is that we as Christians should not have a misplaced confidence in our own goodness and righteousness. Others may praise you for it. Others may be able to speak of the good things you do. Others may be able to to bring to attention to others a godly person. But in ourselves, our confidence is not to be placed there. Paul said if there's anyone who could have a whole lot of confidence about personal righteousness and personal goodness, it's me. I was the epitome of self-righteousness as the world would look at it. But not until he was awakened to the knowledge of Jesus Christ did he look at himself and he says, all my righteousness is rubbish. There's a more explicit term that he's using for it, filth. It is compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count any goodness in me as rubbish so that I can gain Christ. And in gaining Christ, being found in him, having a righteousness that is from God and not made up of by men. That's where my confidence is. And and you see him saying the same thing to this church, this new church that has been going through a whole lot of persecution and a whole lot of trouble and suffering and, and, and experiencing what it means as holy people striving for godliness and facing the hatred of the world and beginning to wonder Have we misplaced our hope? Have we misplaced our confidence? And he comes to stress that need of having confidence in the Lord. 
not in how things are unfolding, not in judging God's blessing or judging God's punishment by whatever good happens to you and whatever bad happens to you, but having a confidence in Jesus that leads you forward in life. And if anyone could be an an expert on directing us in confidence, in directing us in how to be focused on the Lord, even when it's hard and troubling, even when you're in the midst of persecution, it's, it's Paul. Even before he came to Thessalonica, Paul experienced the same things that Jesus experienced in his life and ministry. He had been maligned. He had been slandered, hated. He'd been driven out of cities. And here he comes with the good news of God. Jesus has come to bring salvation to the entirety of the world. To bring mercy and forgiveness from our sins. Deliverance from death. And you would think that that good news would be something that people would long to hear. But they hated. They drove Paul out of many cities. And by they, it's it's, uh, the, the Pharisaical Jews who thought we don't have to worry about salvation. We're God's people. And, and they would uh, raise up a, a crowd of, of evil within the cities to, to persecute and push Paul out because they didn't want that message. And Paul was stoned and beaten with rods and thrown in prison. And his time in Thessalonica was a very short time. If you were to read Acts uh, 17, a matter of just a few weeks, and he had to flee for his life. He, he's writing from Corinth, and he's having a struggling ministry there as well. And his ministry in Thessalonica caused several of the new believers to, to be arrested and, and the church to be severely persecuted. How, how would you be in that time? Where, where would the strength of your faith be in the midst of all of that? Where do you place your confidence? And he comes and he says here, We have confidence in the Lord. I believe urging them to have that that truth realized in their life. We don't set our confidence in the flesh. We don't set our confidence necessarily even in what we see with our eyes. But it's in the Lord. And what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, part... And this isn't the whole of it, but where Paul focuses with this church in the early verses of chapter 3 is how you show your confidence in the Lord. Showing it. And it's seen in in at least these two areas. And the first is it's seen in how you pray. We stress this so much in the life of the church. Are we a praying church? And if we are, how do you pray? Where is your focus? I know many times when it comes to having 
church prayer meetings, for example, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but I want you to see where our emphasis often goes. It goes to the troubles that people are experiencing and praying for the Lord to help them in their troubles. And we focus a lot on people's health and sufferings and afflictions and and needs and on and on. And those things are there. Give us our daily bread. It's a real thing. Have you ever noted how the Lord taught us to pray? That before we even get to that prayer of give us our daily bread, where's our focus foremost? God, hallow your name. If suffering is going to glorify you, God, hallow your name. Let your kingdom come. How does God's kingdom come before it comes in its fullness? It comes when the gospel goes forth in the power of the Spirit. To bring salvation. Another saint is added to the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of Satan shrinks by one, by two, by three. Your will be done. And and you notice that in praying, in showing confidence in the Lord. Our focus of our prayers are preeminently on him. On our God. Before we get to our needs. And the struggles we have. How do you pray? We know the imperatives. And I believe this is for the church. As much as it is for us individually. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5. Philippians For in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving. Ephesians 6, we heard Paul, uh, after talking about that that call of God to put on the whole armor of God, he, he ends with one of the most important things, and that is praying with all prayer in the Spirit. Showing confidence in the Lord is a giving of yourself first over to prayer. And and here Paul tells us what to pray for. With all the suffering that is going on as the gospel ministry of Paul to the Gentile nations is occurring, he doesn't go there. In verse 1, where does he say, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Pray for thy kingdom to come. The first concern, and it's confidence in the Lord, the first concern is the word of the Lord that it may spread quickly. And if you go back to what we read from Ephesians 6, Paul ends with that When he talks about putting on the armor and praying always with all prayer in the spirit, he ends with pray for me. And he's in prison. Don't forget, he wrote that letter from prison. He doesn't say pray for me that I may get out of prison. He says pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. 
and that I may speak it boldly as I ought. (laughs) In other words, he's saying, pray that God will give me bold words to speak and a heart to speak boldly those words he's given me. There's a focus. And why? Why why do we pray before we come to hear the message? Because isn't it a truth that one of the hardest parts of this worship service is to sit and listen to the word of God? We have a lot of reasons why that can happen. But it is. And it's the same with the ministry of the gospel. My simple words, your simple words to somebody else will not work effectually on their head, on their heart, on their will without the hand of God, without the Spirit. And that's why God's word is called the sword of the Spirit, not the sword of the Christian sword of the spirit. And that's why sometimes when we are witnessing to someone and witnessing to them over and over and we stop witnessing to them because we come away with that idea, well, it's just not working. You don't know that. But one thing is certain is that if you went into witnessing to someone without prayer, (laughs) it isn't going to work. (laughs) Because it's not about our effort at that point. It's about the work of the Spirit of God to come and to do what he says there, to glorify the Word of God. You can't glorify the Word of God in somebody else's heart. The Spirit can. And that's why we pray. That's why as a church we are to prayer. Do you know what Spurgeon was asked? What was the success of his And his answer was always the same. And sometimes he would take people to go and show them what he called the boiler room. (laughs) What was the boiler room? It's where a place where before the worship service, upwards to 150 people gathered to pray. They gathered to pray for the word that would be preached that day. There's the church. How do you show confidence? Prayer. Even Jesus made that prayer. John 17, verses 1 and 2. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The Lord prayed, Father, glorify my gospel on the earth. My friends, only the gracious blessing of God through the Spirit makes the word of the Lord effective. Now, I'm not saying we need to gather together before the service, but I would exhort you, encourage you immensely that before you come to church that you are praying in your homes, Father, Bless the gospel today. Bring out people to hear. Let your spirit work on their hearts. Come 
and prosper and glorify that word of Jesus Christ. Souls may be saved and your people strengthened. And part of the other aspect of prayer is praying for that deliverance from unreasonable, wicked men. For not all have faith. It's a prayer that recognizes that there are those who, without faith, are bringing a false gospel and infecting the church with it. Paul isn't talking about the wicked men that are outside of the church here. That phrase, for not all have faith, is directed to those who come tweaking the gospel so that they can fill their bellies and have a following. And that same thing happens today. There are those who promote a legalism where you can be saved by your own works and efforts. You have a goodness that appeals to God. Just obey the law and God will love you and things like that. There are those who bring an easy, cheap grace to the gospel. Hey, The Lord's got a wonderful plan for you. Just believe in him and your life will be better. That's not the gospel. That's a prosperity message of self-righteousness. That's a, well, you can take it if you want. Not a necessity. Some compromise God's word to no end and We see that in the visible church today, especially in Canada. Let's affirm people where they are because God loves them in their sin. Those are all messages that contradict. And you step back and you have, I think, in accordance with this, uh, a legitimacy to wonder at the faith of those who promote such a false gospel. What have you believed in? And my friends, there's where we are praying for that deliverance from unreasonable and wicked men that the pure gospel would go with power. And that gospel is is this simple truth. God is holy. (laughs) You are sinners. God is of pure eyes than to behold evil. Sin shall not dwell in the presence of God. How can you, a sinner, have a right relationship with a holy God? Because there is nothing in you of any good or worth that can ever please and satisfy God Quench his judgment and justice that stands against you as a sinner. If you don't believe you are a sinner, then look and ask yourself, why do we die? We die because that is God's judgment against our sin, against our sinfulness. How can we be delivered from death? Any one of you deliver yourself from that judgment? No. 
And here is where the message of Christ comes and meets us. God has looked down and in love, seeing our wretchedness, seeing our inability, has said, I will love you and send my son who is perfect and holy and righteous, who will come in your humanity and pay that penalty that you deserve. If you but believe in him, God will save you from death, forgive you of your sins, wash you clean. That's the gospel. That's what needs to prevail upon men's hearts. That's what we pray for. As Spurgeon said, you know, with our mere words, we cannot prevail with men for God. But with prayer, we will endeavor to prevail with God for men. What a wonderful quote, eh? The question is, do we have that confidence in the Lord with our prayers? Do we show that confidence? And then Paul brings us about confidence in the Lord, experiencing it from the Lord. And, and we see that in, in, in verse 3 and 5. Because God isn't just saying, okay, just trust me. We do that sometimes, don't we? When we have disappointed our children, for example, and they come and they say to us, Yes, but you promised we would be able to maybe go somewhere and, and it didn't happen. And you say, no, no, just trust me. I'll do it this time. It's hard to have confidence in that, isn't it? But our confidence is in the Lord and the Lord wants us to experience it from him. And that's where he comes and tells us that even where, where we aren't faithful, verse 3, the Lord is faithful. There is a faithfulness from our Lord and Savior that you can rest in where he is establishing and guarding you. And, and this is just very quickly, you can look up these verses if you're writing them down. But there are at least five areas where the Lord says to us, God is faithful. I will be faithful to you. I, and that word faithful is used to say this to us so that we can experience confidence in him. First Corinthians 1, first of all, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. God says, I am faithful. God is faithful to complete your salvation. He will bring you blameless into his presence. God is faithful. Thank God you can have confidence in the Lord. As you look at yourself and you can see blame. At your feet. God is faithful to present you blameless and faultless in his presence with what? Exceeding joy. Isn't that awesome? And secondly, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10 13. How many of you know this verse? 
He's faithful to enable you to endure temptation. There's no temptation that has met you or confronted you that is strange or unusual. So when you find temptation coming into your life and you think, why is this happening? Well, you shouldn't think it's strange. But what should you think? 1 Corinthians 10, 15. But God is faithful to what? He's not going to allow you to be tempted upon beyond what you can endure. But will make a way of escape in Christ. So that it can be said that if you fall into that temptation, it isn't God's fault. It's the lust, the coveting, the pride of your heart that still yet needs subduing. God is faithful. There's a way of escape through his Son, the strength of the Spirit. And God is faithful, 1 Peter 4, 19. He's faithful to to vindicate and remove the shame of suffering that you've experienced in in this world for his namesake. God is faithful to elevate you in that day of glory above all who would have hated you. 2 Corinthians 1.18 God is faithful to fulfill every promise he makes to you In Christ, all the promises of God are what? Yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.18. In other words, they are true and they will be accomplished in you because he who promised is what? He is faithful. Yes. And the last one, I saved it for last. I didn't put these in the order perhaps that would just uh, show us such glory, but I wanted to save this one for last. Because it's our ongoing struggle, even as Christians, to live a life that is God-honoring, and we find ourselves slipping into those besetting sins that drag us through a time and a period where we're calling into question our faith and our faithfulness to God. And you know this one, 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, what's the next line? He is faithful. And he's faithful to what? He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to cleanse you from unrighteousness. Our God is faithful. And in those points, those five points alone... That, that I've mentioned, in those points, he establishes you and he guards you from the evil one. Because, oh, doesn't Satan love to condemn, to accuse, to tempt, to speak to you those thoughts that you're not good enough. And in every one of those five points that I've mentioned, God tells us, I am faithful. Have confidence in me. And he is also faithful, in verse 5, to direct your heart. And he directs your heart into two things. 
to the love of the Father. Always. How many times do we come back to that love of God? God is love. What is the love of the Father? Two things stand out specifically about the love of the Father that are to set our confidence in Him. That love of God which is from eternity that has chosen you in Jesus. And that love of God expressed to you in the offering up of His Son for your salvation. Again, if you don't know Romans 8.32, memorize it. Look to it today. What does he say there? He who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more shall he not freely give us all things? Nothing can separate you from, from that love. The Lord directs our hearts to that. And he also directs our hearts into his patience. The patience of Christ. You ever wonder at times how God can love you when you see your own sins and your own struggles in your life, when you find your faith diminished, when you struggle to believe God? Do you ever wonder how can God love this faithless servant? It's because he's so patient. <laughs> you know, like the patience of a mother for a child. Or we could say the patience of grandparents for their grandchildren. Well, Christ is even more. He has an enduring patience persevering with us until he returns and until this world is brought to an end. He endures because he's looking for the fullness of his inheritance to be brought in. We'll close with these words from Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him, that is the Lord Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become worried, sorry, wearied and discouraged in your souls. Consider him. Put your confidence in the Lord. When you find yourself weary and discouraged, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. (laughs) Speak to your heart those things that, that show how faithful he is concerning your salvation and concerning the gospel and eternal life that he gives to you will see the patience of a savior and a shepherd whose great longing is to see you in his kingdom with him. There's our confidence. It's in the Lord. Not in self, not in the world, not in programs or whatever. It's in the Lord. Do you have that confidence in him? He offers himself to you. Believe on him. Trust him. Let's pray.